I want to remind everyone that tickets for Bitcoin Amsterdam are on sale. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off of your tickets today and come to the biggest party in all of Europe. Come party in Amsterdam with the Bitcoin Magazine crew October 12th to 14th. And now I am pleased and excited to introduce our guest for today. I consider him a friend, someone that I truly listen to all the alpha that he speaks. He is the host of Bitcoin and Markets as well as FedWatch. He's a writer for Bitcoin Magazine and the writer of the newsletter, Bitcoin and Markets, Ansel Linder. Welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks Q for having me. Yeah, you guys, this is the best reporting on, on the internet for Bitcoin. So that was a great little snippet from the outside of the courtroom with Hoddle Knot. I thought that was great. Thanks for having me on. That, no, thank you, Ansel. And I want to reiterate, if any people are watching this and concerned that we're not speaking to Craig Wright, we have put in a request to his team to interview him. We are awaiting a response from his team. So if wow. you have a line to Craig Wright, please feel free to let him know. We would love to hear his side of the story as well. We are we are reporting this fully independently. There is no bias in what we are doing. We're simply reporting the facts. If you think there is bias, my friend, that's on you. But let's dive in. Ansel, yeah, yeah. You pissed me off a few weeks ago, and that's why I was like, I need him on the show. Oh no. Oh no. So I wanna I wanna go back in time a couple of weeks. And I fell into the camp of, I guess, everyone else. So therefore I'm in the wrong and you are most likely in the right because you are the only person that I read. And I read way too many newsletters and macro analysts okay. who really felt like Powell's speech in Jackson Hole was more dovish than hawkish. And I really took what he was saying and maybe to a fault, I took what he was saying literally, because this is the same man who looked us all in the eyes and said, inflation will be transitory with a straight face. I want to first just understand your interpretation of how and why you feel like Powell is actually going to be a lot more dovish than his statement in that moment. Oh, well, I mean, I don't, I, I don't remember the exact things that he said there, but it what first off, it wasn't a policy statement like you know coming from an FOMC meeting or something like that where he's saying exactly what they're going to do what they're thinking the the market had put a lot of weight onto exactly what Powell was going to say there and it was a short and sweet statement he came in and got out that that's what i remember specifically from that i don't remember all the different parts that were i thought might be more dovish than hawkish but for Powell Generally, Powell has pivoted once, twice before, right? He's pivoted from tightening in 2018 to easing in 2019. And then in 2021, he pivoted very quickly from easing to tightening again. So he has pivoted out of the blue several times. And remember that first time in 2018, like he came out, he was a brand new chairman and he came out like in uh, December of 2018. And he said, uh, monetary policy is on autopilot. They're going to tighten. It's on autopilot. The very next month he paused, you know, so he can switch on a dime. Uh, and I expect that to happen again. So it's just a matter of figuring out exactly when the, the market has deteriorated enough to the point where the, he is going to pivot on a dime. It is, it is his MO and he will, I think, continue to go along with that MO. 
It's fair. I feel like there's also a little bit he was stealing that, uh, or actually that Ben Bernanke stole from him in that moment where he essentially said the Fed's job is more about talking than actually following through. And we see mm. the markets themselves have pretty much told Powell and the Fed, hey, this is what we want you to do, or at least this is what we think you're going to do. And there haven't been any surprises. I I love James Lavish's weekly reports. In this most recent week, he, he gave a, a little bit of history and context on Volcker. And one thing that I think he missed and something that I think a lot of us I'm, I'll only age myself is like, I was never alive. I wasn't even a thought in my parents' mind when Paul Volcker was around doing what he did. But more were these like social media and all that stuff aside. There weren't these systems in place where predictive methods of, hey, these are what we expect the Fed to do. None of that existed during Volcker's time. So he had a little bit more freedom to come out and surprise the markets with such, such heavy and heavy-handed interest rate hikes. Now, I'm not saying you're expecting Powell is going to go into that vein, but how much do you feel like the oversight that Powell has, not just from the government, but from the public and how the public can see and think through everything they're doing, how much is that affecting the Fed's decision-making process right now in your opinion? Oh, that's a very good question. I know back, I mean, I don't remember I'm too young to remember Volcker, but I, I do remember Greenspan actually, not as an adult, but I remember maybe catching some highlights on the nightly news or something like that from Greenspan. And he, it was pretty serious back then. Like they would worry because he always would carry a briefcase into his testimony in front of Congress, you know, cause they have to do those oversight hearings with the different houses in Congress. And uh, they would look at where he, how he was carrying his bag. Was he carrying it with his left hand? Or his right hand was he carrying it by the handle or was he carrying it kind of by the bottom you know they would look at those things and detail out exactly like what they reading his body language so that is it's always been at least for the last i would say 20 to 30 years it has been extremely focused on the chairman and what he's saying and what he's doing interpreting things now they have bots that will read like the fomc statement it drops like a half hour before the press conference. And there are bots that are scraping that immediately and digesting it and putting it through, you know, some algorithm that people have programmed to look for certain keywords and things. And then they'll trade based on that, what, what their, their algos of their bots are saying. So there there's, yeah, it's, it's heavily scrutinized. Does that answer your question? No, it, it absolutely does. I, I, I think the just understanding how our society and even just the markets themselves have changed from what they were like 40, 50, even 30 or 20 years ago is so important in understanding, I think, some of the decision-making processes here. I'm, I'm curious though, what is it with the amount of noise that's out there, and I'm going to shamelessly plug Bitcoin and markets as being one of the the highest signal newsletters out there. What are what are the things that you are paying close attention to? I want to dive into the merge later with you, but what are other things that you're really paying attention to right now? Well, my view on the market has changed radically, I would say, over the last four or five years. And I see that the entire global financial system is in a debt trap 
right? Because it's credit-based money and you can't solve a debt problem by adding more debt. And that's what they're trying to do globally. So the, the end result of that is low growth and low inflation. Because you can always kick the can down the road by adding more debt, but that doesn't mean that you can get out of your debt problem, right? So it just kicks the can down the road a little bit and you might have reflation, you might have some recovery in the market, but then it eventually, given enough time, maybe two, two, three, four years, you'll go back into that low growth, low inflation environment. And so when I look at COVID and the response, it was dramatic. Yes, it was very big, but it's going to wear off and we're going back to a low growth, low inflation environment um, until the only the end of that is when we change the money. So we had to go away from a credit based money back to a commodity money. I think that will be Bitcoin personally. Of course, gold bugs do have an argument, but I think Bitcoin is is a better solution and it will be chosen by you know people as they are starting to switch and look for a new currency. Bitcoin is going to be a more ready available option, I think, than going back to gold. So um, that's what I think. I think uh, these are just the market is going to do what the market is going to do. And we are in a low going back towards a low growth, low inflation until we change the money. So that's how I kind of view everything in all of like all the developments in the space in, in macro or out of China or out of Europe or even the US, whatever. I always view that with an understanding that the underlying trend that they're trying to manipulate, that they're trying to get out of is low growth, low inflation. They're trying to beat the deflationary boogeyman. And so that's how I view, view the whole state of the global economy. I love that. I think that's so well put. I, I need to, to strengthen your argument. Have you, have you had a chance <laughs> ever to, to go and do a correlation between the M2 money supply and S&P 500? I mean, I don't remember. I probably have seen something like that in the past, but I haven't seen it recently. It, it averaged. So it fluctuates. It's never exactly stagnant over a long window of time for, for viewers who've never made a correlation on a stock chart. Uh -huh. But with the M2 money supply and the S&P 500 since 2008, the correlation is averaging about 0.92. So the way I interpreted that is for every dollar that our Fed was printing, that grew the S&P 500 by 92 cents on the dollar. So what terrifies me is we're at sort of that curtain call moment where we can keep passing the buck. We can keep throwing some debt here or there, but we've kind of reached a point where all of our other rich friends, all the other rich countries can't really afford what's going on. We're seeing the collapse of the yen. We're seeing Europe honestly just try to be the 51st state in America at this point. I, I, like that's, that's my pick that we're going to somehow have Europe be like a new form of America. And then you have, of course, just the ongoing debacles with Russia and Ukraine, and then an impending almost debacle, if you will, between China and Taiwan. Of all of the foreign countries and all the problems that we hear internationally, is there one or two in particular where you're like, this is a breaking point that will break a lot of people? Out of all those things that you mentioned there? Or anything that I'm not thinking of. Well, I think that like places like Europe are, they're in for structurally higher inflation. And it's funny that I say that, but when I'm 
uh, you know, I'm bullish on the dollar because I think, you know, the economy in Europe is fundamentally different than the economy in the United States. They're heavily dependent. They've kind of, you know, cut off a couple, like, like a cut off their leg, their left leg and their right arm to try to be like this uh, globalist, globalist power. And now they're finding out, oh crap, we are, our economy is screwed. So there, it's going to take them decades, maybe even as long as a century to recapture kind of self-reliance in, in Europe. And the way I think that is going to happen is I think they're going to move south. You know, over the last 500 years, when you've had the Renaissance and into the Enlightenment and stuff, European culture has moved northward towards places, you know, Amsterdam, Brussels, that type of thing. And into, of course, Paris and Berlin and all that. But, you know, the the history of, of Europe is in the south, you know, Rome and Greece and Spain and places, even North Africa. So I think that the Europe is facing this structural problem. And I don't think it's going to end in some acute fashion. I think it's going to just be a gradual shift towards resources. They need to get their hands on more resources. So that is a fundamentally different view than how you would have to look at the United States, where the United States has all the resources it needs. It has an excess of resources. And so the U.S. is actually going to turn back internal, where Europe kind of has spent the last 50 years getting their kind of European Union in order unsuccessfully, I think. And they've been kind of not worried about resources. Now they're going to shift and be more external, I think, move south, move into North Africa and the Middle East for a race for resources, while the U.S. is kind of pulling back and they're, they're coming home and not going to be as big of a peacekeeper in the world. Now, a lot of people don't like that term peacekeeper, but, you know, the U.S. has since, especially since the fall, the end of the Cold War, but going back to World War II, that we have uh, made it so that there's free trade possible in the world. The world, it, this has kind of been known as a, you know, a lot of people, well, I have done this, but a lot of people have said this long before I have, is uh, called it a Pax Americana. So during the Roman Empire, you know, right at the beginning with Augustus and all that, they had what, after he became emperor, they had a Pax, what was <laughs> Pax Romana, and it was all of the Mediterranean and this peaceful trade, this peaceful trade. And they really grew, they really boomed economically during that time. Well, the U.S. copied that for the entire world. The entire world was able to trade. And that's why we've seen you know, the most people taken out of poverty in the world, the most wealth created in the last 50 years than ever combined in, in the world, in the history of the world. And that's under a free trade regime that the U.S. was externally enforcing. Now, if the U.S. is pulling back and Europe is stepping forward, you know, the, that type of dynamic can cause a lot of problems for a lot of places. You'd have to look individually at different countries, like you could look at Egypt. Okay, now let's see what's going to happen to Egypt over the next couple decades. If this backdrop of what I'm talking about is is happening. What about Saudi Arabia? What about South Africa, Brazil, you know, you have to go individually through these countries and try to pull out what is going to happen to them because the the world is not defined anymore as a global free trade zone. Okay, the world is going to be defined much differently. It's going to be not, I don't even call it multipolar. I call it multi-regional and there's going to be regional powers. So Europe is going to dominate the North Sea, Baltic Sea, Mediterranean Sea, 
all that around there. That's going to become like the European zone of, of influence. The U.S. is going to have the Western Hemisphere. Then you got to look at to, to China. Well, what's going to happen with China? What is going to be their region of influence? Is Russia going to be with Europe or China? Like that's the age old question, by the way, too, about Russia. So you, you can't just say there's going to be one or two major events in the next five to 10 years that are going to dictate how this all plays out. I think every country is kind of on their own. And that's scary. That's really scary, I think, for a lot of underdeveloped places, markets. I mean, telling an emerging market, hey, you you no longer have the benefit of the WTO, you know, the World Trade Organization. You no longer have the benefit of all these other institutions that you can go to to get fair treatment. Now you have to enforce fair treatment on your own. That's scary for a lot of places. So, yeah, that's how I would describe going forward in the world. You have to look at it more piecemeal and take one country at a time, one region at a time and uh, figure out what's going to happen with them. I respect and I appreciate that. And I will never again ask to clump things up, especially. <laughs> Thank you for that. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, my homeland of Iran in the news okay. a couple of weeks ago with their decision to settle international trades and accept, they said cryptocurrencies, but we're going to continue to assume they're implying Bitcoin. They did settle a very significant international trade with a cryptocurrency that was undisclosed, but given the size of that transaction, we feel very confident in saying it was Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. We also have now Russia passing through legislation saying they will accept Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies to settle international trade. I don't need to really read anything more than these are two countries that have US and Western sanctions put on them. And they are using these forms of these cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in particular to circumvent sanctions. And I'm curious if you think there will just come a point where some Western allies may just decide and opt to we're going to settle trade with Russia because I have, and I'll, I'm going to use two specific examples so we can only analyze these two countries. I want to talk about the UK with okay. Liz Truss now being implemented as prime minister. You're seeing the rising energy bills. You're seeing people get to the streets. And let's throw out Czechoslovakia because they have had some of the loudest protests and their citizens are calling upon their leaders to essentially get back to the table with Putin and Russia and come to some sort of an agreement to end the war to decrease the price of energy. And I'm curious if you think there could be a breaking point in either of these countries for them to settle trade with a country like Iran or a country like Russia that's currently under Western sanctions for the sake of their citizens. Mm. So break away and get rid of sanctions unilaterally for themselves is what you're saying. Not necessarily get rid of sanctions, but rather just simply complete trade to receive more oil or energy gas and turn and settle it with whatever denomination that their trade partner sees fit strictly that nothing else not necessarily saying they are off sanctions but strictly to receive gas and oil hey guys this is q from bitcoin magazine live as the world like moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin, Moon Mortgage makes it possible to materialize your digital assets. Collateralized loans are great for living expenses, buying a car, or even for when you just have to have that sweet Rolex. 
But what isn't so great is when you then lose the ability to trade your assets once your loan has been taken out. So just like you, Moon Mortgage believes you should be able to have your cake and eat it too. Moon Mortgage's Trade and Borrow is the world's first digital asset loan margin account, allowing you to instantly trade your Bitcoin while borrowing against your account, all with next to zero insolvency risk, no origination fees, nor any third-party risk, as Moon Mortgage will never lend out your digital assets. Welcome to the future of collateralized lending. Visit moonmortgage.io today to learn how you can trade, borrow, and then trade your digital assets some more. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference which includes hands-on engagements at our proof-of-workshop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLIVE for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Oh man, well, there's a lot built into that question because, you know, oil, yeah, oil is a big product of Iran. It's a big product of Russia, but it's not the only thing in their economy, right? They have a lot of tourism that goes in and out of different places. So they have a lot of foreigners going there, Russians going to places like Cyprus and and other things. So there, there's a lot of travel that you have to worry about. There's a lot of other business. So I know that I think there was out of like the hundred largest companies in Russia, 50 of them were German or something like that. So you, you have a lot of competing interests in both of these places. And so it's not as easy as saying we're going to get just this one product is going to be able to flow. And you would even have to worry about, you know, well, what is that going to do to the import exports of these different countries? And, you know, maybe that would be uh, cause an imbalance that would actually harm the UK, you know, or harm Czechoslovakia. So I don't know. I haven't looked into that deeply. I think the UK, uh, like, I don't really care too much about who's prime minister because the overall powers that be are, are going to, and the, the situation, political situation, the geopolitical situation in the world are going to force their hand. So what the UK is looking at right now is the UK is looking at going into this next few decades without an agreement with the United States. So they've been stiff arming a major trade deal with the US. They stiff armed it under Trump. They've stiff armed it so far under Biden, where Japan has signed, South Korea, I believe, has signed. There's some other 
major countries that have signed this these these bilateral negotiations with the United States, but the UK has not. So it, it, does the UK want to be European or do they want to be trade partners with the US? That's the the decision that's facing the UK right now and possibly why their politics look so turned upside down, why it's they can't make a choice, why they're going back and forth between different prime ministers. So, but I'm not an expert on UK politics, so that's about all I can say. Now for Czechoslovakia, when you look at them, they are smack dab in the middle of Europe. They're landlocked. They're next to the largest economic engine in, in Europe, that being Germany. But they're also next to Hungary, which has a populist leader. And it sounds like Czechoslovakia is having a populist wave as well. And I talked about this on FedWatch yesterday that Italy looks like they're going to be turning populist and Sweden looks like they're turning populist. And what, what I mean by populist is just anti-globalist with an anti-EU type of proclivity, I guess. So, you know, all of it's Czechoslovakia, if they join this camp of kind of populist countries, a block inside of the EU, I mean, we could see some major political battles happening and possibly the beginning of the end of the European Union. I mean, it would take a long time, but that that could be the start of that. Now, saying that, how does Czechoslovakia then deal with all their trade negotiations within the European Union, right? Because they have free trade within the European Union, free travel and all that stuff. Well, what happens if they start importing Russian oil, maybe through Hungary or something, and that, but they else in the European Union doesn't like that, Germany, and or Poland, and they say, well, now you guys can't travel to Poland. These Czechs can't travel to Poland or whatever. I mean, there's all sorts of different things that can happen. So I hope that was a complete answer. <laughs> no, that was I, that was excellent. I I love that, and I I do think there is. I, I love the way you frame it framed it. Of does the UK want to continue to be trade partners with the US or with Europe? And I I do think that there are going to be certain decisions that we've already seen countries like like England make and we're going to start to slowly see I think other European nations make similar decisions of what's right for their citizens or what's right for the powers that be to retain control. I do have to because you are on my show. It is pronounced Iran. I will always correct everyone who comes on. I want to also What did just, I say? Iran? Did I say Iran, Iran or Iraq? Oh, okay. You read What is it? I I always it, I, honestly, I don't even know how to pronounce it improperly okay iran 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 here's something for just i want to always tell this story iran currently sits on a estimated 157 billion with a b barrels of oil this was documented in 2016 so with six more years of sanctions as well as oil production i think that number can safely be estimated as higher but let's just leave that number as is given the fact that this country cannot export its oil but the countries that can make up opec opec countries produce about 28 million barrels of oil a day so that means iran is sitting on over 5000 times the amount of oil that OPEC produces on a daily basis. I really would like to understand and just continue to hammer this. I know you're not going to have the answer to this, but like at a certain point, when are citizens going to wake up and really ask their leaders, 
why are you preventing this country from selling us a good that is necessary right now where we find ourselves in the global stage? And it's not just Iran, Russia as well. And my caveat to that is no one has kicked Russia out of OPEC+. Plus. No one has said Russia can't participate in that. And Russia's finding these ways to circumvent. They're selling their oil to Turkey. They're selling their oil and gas to China. At a certain point, history to me dictates that we're never going to actually tell Russia they can introduce their oil directly to the markets and we'll use these middlemen. And as someone who my past life was literally just as a middleman, let me tell you, the middlemen like to take a cut too. So are we accidentally introducing a middleman to the oil industry for no reason other than the egos of our political powers to then in turn introduce higher oil and gas prices that will just stay higher? Yeah, I absolutely. Said, I, threw, I threw a lot at you, Ansel. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> well, in your, in your latter point there, that's exactly what they're doing. And that's why I think the structural inflation or structural CPI, whatever of Europe is going to be higher than other places because yeah, they're doing things like putting a middleman in, in between the producer and the consumer. So one of the sanctions that this is just an example. So Russia is now exporting a lot of oil via tanker and these tankers, you know, that they need insurance because you're not going to have a $5 billion tanker just putting around the global oceans without insurance. So the, the insurance market for these large vessels is like 95% out of the UK. And part of the sanctions package that the Europeans and the UK wanted to put on Russia was not being able to get insurance for their shipping. Well, the UK ended up backing off of that and just said that they would only insure, they, they would insure Russian shipping, except when it's coming to the UK. So that was a you know, very small percentage of total exports of Russia. Another thing that they said in the EU was that they couldn't do business with Russian oil companies, but now that the, they're kind of going away from that saying, well, if you do business through a middleman, you can do business through a middleman. You don't have to worry that the, you know, the other third party is a Russian like Gazprom or something. So yeah, they're slackening those, those regulations. So th that's what I would say to your latter question now about Iran and stuff. I mean, there's a lot, I, I do think sanctions have hurt Iran greatly or sorry, Iran, Iran greatly, but they, it's not like if the sanctions went away that Iran would be able to really come to prominence with their oil production because they have high costs of export. You know, they can only go out the Persian Gulf. And they've been trying to make some pipelines, you know, through Iraq and through Syria to the Mediterranean. That's that's a possibility that they could do something like that. But they they have higher export costs than, say, Russia, a pipeline directly to Germany. Right. That that was like the lowest cost possible to get oil and gas into the European Union was directly from the Russian pipelines. Iran has a roundabout way of getting it there. So they're, they're always going to be a slightly higher cost producer in that respect. Also, if the U.S. is backing off of securing this free trade, who hates Iran? Well, it's not like Iran only has enemies because the U.S. is there or the because they have these sanctions. No, Iran has perpetual enemies. They Israel hates them and they hate Israel. Saudis don't like them. Even the, the, what would it be? The Sunnis in Iraq don't like the Iranians. 
so there, there is a lot of different things that could go wrong if the U.S. didn't protect world peace, right? Like the only reason why is Israel isn't bombing places in Iran is because the U.S. has told them, no, we want this free trade. We want the oil to flow. We want people to get rich. We don't want to fight people right now. But if the U.S. is pulling back from that commitment, Iran is going to maintain being a high cost producer. So what do you think about that? I'm, I'm digesting this. I will say you're not wrong. Nothing you have said is a lie. I want to unpack. Well, that's, however, that's good. <laughs> I want to unpack not the Israel of it. I, that we need like six hours and I need oh, yeah. a lot more juices in myself. The Saudi Arabia of it all, I think there's a there's a lot of history just within the Middle East itself. And all of these different countries are really just different tribes of the Persian Empire. And <sighs> Masal is such an asshole when I frame things like this and I apologize well, even- even Saudi Arabia, because they they they're the Bedouins from long time past. Like I don't think the Persian Empire ever had the Arabian Peninsula, did they? No, but that and that sort of feeds into why a lot of the Middle East doesn't actually really align with or agree with uh, Saudi and the way the Saudis have handled business. Yeah, and there's always been, I think, an animosity between the Persian state or the Persian sort of region of the Middle East and the Saudi Peninsula and the Saudi region. There is, I think, especially since the post 9-11 climate of the Middle East, there's a growing consensus in, I think, Western educated Persian descendants who will always point to and say, why is it that the West has aligned with the Saudi Peninsula that has given them all of this oil and gas, while at the same time, I can point to and say every single 9-11 hijacker had a Saudi Arabian passport. They may not have actually been a Saudi Arabian citizen, and I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole with you, but there are are certain questions where a lot of these other countries begin to sort of ask and question, and it feeds more fuel into this fire of, well, fuck the Saudis. They fucked it up for everyone else. They now made the whole world look at brown people in this light, in this way, when it's in fact just their class of citizens doing this. There's always been history and animosity between Iran and Iraq. I will tell you one of the most ridiculous stories that I literally sat there in the taxi and I was like, you're an idiot to my cousin. But I've very loudly said this, the Iran-Iraq war, which happened in the 80s, early 90s, saw George Bush Sr. selling weapons of mass destruction to Iraq to arm them against Iran during that war, which I've said and I will continue to say is the reason why Dick Cheney and George Bush Jr. essentially said, oh, yeah, Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction because my dad sold them to him. They never said the second part, but that was always implied. Iran won the Iran-Iraq war and in a taxi cab in Australia with my cousin who is from, from Iran served in the Iranian military, which is no different than the Israeli military. Everyone must serve for a certain number of years or you can pay your way out of service. He turns to the Iraqi taxi driver and says to him, oh, you're from Iraq, Iraq-Iran war. We won, we won the war. And there's, it goes back historically. It's not just in this iteration in the 80s and 90s. You had it centuries ago and this region 
drew its borders, not because the rest of the world was creating nation states. These borders that are found in the Middle East are and have existed for centuries now. And it's long been understood that this region is our region for our culture to continue to grow and prosper. And this region is yours to continue to grow and prosper. I think a, a big thing that worries a lot of people and draws back to your original point and the concerns of what happens when Iran is introduced and they have these adversaries and how are their adversaries going to react is due in large part because we've never been reliant on this global system where we need oil from other countries or other countries rely on the imports that they bring in and then are able to pay for these imports by exports they send out to other countries. We've never really seen so much reliance. There's always been international trade as far back as the days of the Silk Road. However, the reliance on it was not the same as what we see today. That theory that so long, I, and I'm spacing on what exactly it's called, Chris, if, if it rings a bell in your head, like throw it in the chat real quick, but please, oh, also throw up SE's to his second comment. He's so right. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to call this out in a second too. Yes. All you white people who call yourself Caucasian stole it from my people, by the way, because the Caucasus mountains are in Iran and being Caucasian means you are from that region of the world. So Caucasian does not mean white skinned, you Anglo-Saxon motherfuckers. Sorry, that was aggressive, but I always, I love that. Thank you, SE, for pointing that out. There is an economic theory, though, that as we become more reliant on one another, we are less likely to wage war because we stand to benefit by being in business with one another. It was That was one of the largest economic factors into why we continue to trade with China, despite the fact that China militarized themselves during this growth period. I think there's a valid argument on both sides of it that should Iran enter the fray of international trade, they may decide to use this excess wealth to militarize themselves, further expand their nuclear arms sort of division or however the West wants to depict it. I do think at a certain point, people just are going to say like, if they have something we want and we have money that they're willing to accept for it, we've reached a point of causing pain on ourselves for what is the payout here ultimately. And I, I think that straw is going to break. I truly feel as though what we're going to see is I keep seeing these these headlines of Russia and Saudi Arabia looking to make a deal. I was banging the drums back in January and February that, hey, Xi Jinping and Putin are going to Iran. They're sitting down with the Iranian president and you have to be a fool to think that the questions that they're not that they're asking aren't in the lines of or along the lines of how, how has Iran handled sanctions? How have you guys grown and prospered during these last 50 years while being hamstrung by Western sanctions? Your country still operates. You are independent. You're able to be self-sufficient. Like, How do you do that? And I think we're seeing Russia take some cues from the Iranian playbook and then just flexing their strength a little bit more and taking it even further. I think ultimately, at a certain point, there's a lot of religious history that is the root of the animosity in that part of the world. And I will never say or call someone who is religious or believes anything, any religion or any spiritual text as being foolish or stupid until you start to say that that person's wrong for their beliefs. And I think we've reached a point in our modern society where there's too much of, I'm a Sunni Muslim, you're a Shiite Muslim, like you're wrong. 
And because you're wrong, I must now take arm and offense to what you say. No different than the way a lot of the animosity we see between Jewish people and Muslim people, which isn't the case always. But I just want to also point that out. The la last thing I will point out and highlight is I never and will never forget the day the nuclear deal was signed when Obama was in office and I was watching CNN for the announcement and they cut to Netanyahu who was giving a speech. And within 10 seconds, he cursed at Obama. He swore that Iran was going to use this to attack Israel, attack the Western world. And then all of a sudden, the screen went and did the like multicolor, like, oh, we're having technical difficulties. I'm like, no, we're not. No, we're not. Like, I want to understand what this man has to say, what he's saying to his people, because we're just adding fuel to this fire. We've left a country siloed off from the rest of the world and we act as though well they're just we're justified to leave them off then in all honesty they're justified to get upset they're justified to look at the rest of the world and be like all right dude if russia can do that and still sell their oil like we didn't invade any countries we didn't throw bombs in the u.s we didn't curse out anyone and so that's sort of where I'm like, you're right. Iran has adversaries. So does Russia. So does the US. So does Saudi Arabia. So does Israel. So does Iraq. Uh, at a certain point, we have to, I think, remove this idea of, well, they're going to create nuclear weapons. What if they're just trying to, I don't know, expand their nuclear arsenal to better understand how to harness nuclear energy so that they can iterate and move on? Because at a certain point, I am in the camp that nuclear energy is the future of energy. And everyone is going to, every country, every region is going to have access to harness this. I, I think we're shooting ourselves in the foot, but I have such a heavy and strong bias and I'm not naive to that. Yeah, well, I wasn't trying to say that Iran is, is special in that they have all of these problems with exporting their energy or taking advantage of their energy resources. Yeah, you're right. Russia has the exact same problem. And that is why... You know, Russia was really, they really do, they would rather be peaceful with Europe and send them energy. They've, they've always had kind of a leaning towards Europe than say Central Asia. Russians have always kind of had that tie to Europe instead of with Central Asia. But going back to Iran, Iran, sorry, the Iran, I, I want to talk really quickly about why Saudi versus Iran. Well, it's obvious that Iran has better geographics, like the geographic area of Iran lends itself to being a power base, a base of power. And that goes back thousands of years, right? There's always been a very powerful centralized state there that has influence that has spread their influence all the way to the Mediterranean and pretty much all the way to the Indus River, you know, going to the east. So Iran has always been a power base. Saudi Arabia has not. Saudi Arabia is a complete manufactured entity just off the u.s security guarantee so the u.s knew that they could control the saudi the saudis much more than they could control the iranians and so to keep kind of a peaceful chessboard over there for a long time they had to humble iran and build up saudi arabia that was i mean this is outside of a moral judgment. I, I think that obviously lots of people died and there's lots of bad and ills that came from it. But at the same time, there's 
a lot of good. I mean, people have been pulled out of poverty. So many people have been pulled out of poverty over the last 50 years. Relatively on a global basis, there have been very few wars. This has been pretty much the most peaceful era in human history ever. Okay, so there's fewer wars globally, fewer people dying in wars. That era is ending. We're going back to a normal base case of more violence in the world. So you said that there was, you know, a lot of people had reliance on free trade or they had free trade like the Silk Road and all that stuff, but it wasn't such a big part of their economy. And that's true. International trade was like maybe 5% of people's economies until the last 75 years when it became up to 60% of China, right? Up to 50% of Germany. All these places now are heavily, heavily reliant on globalization. So I think globalization is the aberration. It is the manipulated state of affairs. And people, it's not natural for countries to rely 50% on international trade. It's natural for them to rely 5 or 10%. Okay, so we're going back to that world. Now, if you look around, who is the most reliant on international trade? Those people are going to be the most humbled in the coming decades. And the people like Iran that is more self-sufficient, maybe they've been forced to, to be self-sufficient, but they're more self-sufficient. They're probably going to benefit over this time because, yeah, the sanctions are going to get less severe or less able to be enforced. And they're already self-sufficient. So everything else that they do with international trade now is like a, a bonus, a, a cream on top. So I think when you look at the world that way and you think, okay, globalization is going away, people most relying on globalization are going to get humbled, where people that are less relying on globalization are going to thrive in that in that time. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how I look at it. And also you said about the kind of sectarian divide over there in the Middle East. Well, we see that in our politics here conservatives and liberals they they get the south the west coast east coast yeah, they get violent man it's it's get there is some similarities in in that case yeah and i think i i want to unpack one thing and then we will absolutely stop and move on i really I, to simplify this the best way possible okay one of the reasons i think if you can look at iran and the way the relationship they have with just the U.S. and the West in particular, and then Western allies as a byproduct, is the result of a failed attempt at inserting a leader into power in Iran that aligns with the West. And there was an uprising and citizens did not want this leader to have the power anymore. And as a result... Iran essentially has been put into this corner of, well, it was a, a failed attempt at putting a leader that aligns with us and their new leader like really doesn't like us. So I guess you guys are just now deemed bad guys. That's in all honesty, the simplest way I think of establishing how and why Iran has the relationship with the West it does now. It was a failed attempt at creating and inserting, inserting a leader that would align with what the West wanted and needed. And there's a whole backstory with the fact that BP, British Petroleum, used to actually be Iranian British Petroleum. Actually, it was yeah. PBP. It was Persian British Petroleum. Something. It was yeah. owned by the Iranian state and the UK government. And then when the Iranian state stopped being as compliant and stopped sort of giving everything to the British, that's when the British asked the US to step in and intervene. Let's talk the merge.
We've been oh, reaching boy. out and calling P right. nonstop. No one has heard from P and he owes us shoe leather in his mouth, digested in his stomach. If you see P on the streets, you arrest him. Maybe he um, did that and he's in the hospital. <laughs> has anybody checked the hospitals? Call the emergency rooms. We got, I'm, I'm on the phone with his local police department as well. <laughs> uh, they said no missing person report can be submitted until 24 hours. However, the caveat is I have not heard or seen him since yesterday afternoon. <laughs> so we're coming up on that 24 hours and the police will be looking. But yeah. what are your thoughts? Like it happened, I guess. I don't yeah, really yeah. know. I'm, I'm not paying attention. I'm just taking it from the bird app and people talking about it, it having happened. So right. are you surprised well, I, that it went through? Well, the last couple of weeks on my newsletter, I've been saying that I'm leaning towards it going off okay. Uh, because we didn't see a it all, all the stuff with the price and what you would expect from a buy the rumor sell the news which is kind of turning into a sell the news a little bit here but i didn't see a huge pump pre-pump and so that means that there wouldn't be a huge crash afterwards which meant then you could deduct that okay well that means that it went off okay so uh, when i was looking at the charts and i was trying to decide you know what what are the kind of lack of a pre-pump what does that mean well i thought that that meant it was going to go off okay now when you look down two three weeks maybe a couple months down the road i think there's going to be some bugs so this is like just the initial step this doesn't mean that it's going to maintain consensus right because it, it's supposed to be this consensus mechanism and yes they transferred over to it but look there's probably going to be a consensus bug in the next few months i would i would guess so that's what i think is going to happen it's it's going to go okay it's going to seem okay maybe there's a little bit of sell-off right now but overall it's a non-event and then a couple months down the road maybe we'll have some sort of consensus bug that you know blows everything up they will be able to patch it they, they'll be able to blow you know sweep everything under the rug but overall i think this is kind of a death knell at least as, as a bitcoiner i think that this is a death knell for Ethereum and it'll just kind of lose relevance over the next few years. So that's what I think. I want to also just get your, your take or your sentiment on a, how does this affect Bitcoin in, in just this immediate moment in time? We have this conversation now almost too often defending proof of work. I, I saw a statistic where now Bitcoin has a market share of 94% of all of the proof of work blockchains in existence now as a result of this merge. But what are your expectations? How is this going to impact Bitcoin? Well, the, the big thing is it took a lot of uncertainty off the table. So I think it, you know, going into this, there was a lot of risk. People thought there might be a blow up right away. There might be some some consensus bug that won't even let them go to proof of stake in the first place. So there, there was uncertainty around this whole event. Now that it's over with, I think there is going to be less uncertainty. And what when that happens, usually that's bullish for price. So I think the, the underlying kind of fundamentals of the space are less uncertain. And so that's going to be bullish for Bitcoin. It's not bearish. Let me put it that way. It's not definitely not bearish. And I lean towards this being bullish now when it does blow up eventually which i i am kind of predicting sometime in the next six months or something there will be some sort of bug then that could be bearish in that moment for bitcoin but it's ethereum has always followed bitcoin and 
what they did by this event is they they tried to decouple ethereum from bitcoin or is that's the effect of this whole thing is going to be decoupling ethereum from bitcoin so it's going to be less and less relevant for bitcoin over the next year or so i, I want to get a sense too of just you know we're we're witnessing in real time i think ethereum validate itself as a security. You spent some time in your most recent Bitcoin and Markets newsletter discussing just how the Ripple case is going to be setting precedent for how the SEC wants to handle these things going forward. We're seeing the jokes online of, oh, the Fed and Ethereum just merged together. Like This now is, is more state-owned and control. Shout out and congratulations to Jeff Bezos for completing this successful Ethereum merge. Did we lose Ansel? Can you hear me? We can hear you. All right. I, think I, might, I just, I tried to switch up some a setting with my camera and I think I goofed it up. Let me see if I can make, fix it again. It's okay. We're talking about too much highbrow stuff. So I'm sure Restream was contacted by the state and said to, to stop any disparaging remarks against our newest shitcoin Ethereum 2.0. Another, a couple funny, a couple more funny things that I noticed online. <laughs> a cost of $58,000 USD, or I believe roughly, I don't, I don't, honestly don't, I'm not going to try to say how much in Ethereum because I don't know. I don't, I don't own any Ethereum, but that is the fee that is going, that is being charged to mint a new NFT on this new Ethereum merged blockchain. So how about those cheaper fees on a proof of stake network guys working out well for the 58K gang? I mean, this is wild to say the least i'm very very interested to see how this plays out how any how and if any miners decided to opt and stay and refuse the merge and stay on the old ethereum network and continue the proof of work blockchain will be interesting to see how i think all of those old nfts that were minted on the proof of work blockchain how their value is derived with proof of stake minted NFTs, I don't fucking know if I'm even saying it right because I just I don't care to be in that shitcoin casino. If you do, best of luck, my friends. Your money and time is much more well spent understanding and helping to build the Bitcoin ecosystem and network. But that's just one man's opinion. Ansel, are you there? Ah, he's there. Yeah, my camera's um, working now. Sorry about that. No, you're good. I don't know if you have any thoughts on just some of the things I threw out. Like, for example, yeah, yeah. this this cost of minting an NFT on, on the new blockchain or, or oh. what, but please. Well, no, I don't have any thoughts on that because I haven't really looked into what the, the new fundamentals for Ethereum are going to be. So that's, that's going to be coming probably in next month or so. We're going to be able to digest all of that. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about the Ripple case that you said I wrote about on my newsletter. And I think this is very interesting. Okay. Because a lot of people are like, well, why doesn't, you know, the SEC, well, first off, Bitcoiners don't want the SEC to go after anybody, but we realize that they exist, right? We realize the bad guys exist. And so you need to plan and just realize, go forward and invest as if the bad guys exist. And people don't seem to get that. But anyway, so the SEC isn't going after these altcoins really hard because it's kind of tricky they might lose in court. And that's what they're seeing here with Ripple. And they don't want to go through and set bad precedent. 
They want to set good precedent. So they're they're using Howie. Howie was a court case decision from, I don't know, I don't know how many years ago it was, maybe 75 years ago or something, to talk about what makes a security. But Howie doesn't, it's not really perfect for describing what altcoins are. So I think what they're trying to do is expand on the Howie precedent and make a, a Ripple precedent. And so when Ripple, when that court case that they're putting a lot of time and effort into to form good precedent, <clears throat> when that comes down, then they'll be able to apply that everywhere else. And in the same breath in this, or the same week, I guess, that Gensler from the SEC said that he wants Bitcoin to be under the CFTC, but no mention of Ethereum. So, you know, I think Gensler is, he's not a friend or anything of Bitcoin, but he is not an enemy. He's definitely not an enemy. And that, that's good. I think he, he sees Ethereum for what it is. He sees these altcoins for what they are, but he's just trying his best to not lose in court and form good precedent. And to me, that is almost like, that's a good sign that we have like a robust legal system, that the legal system isn't as corrupt as everybody says. I mean, it is in some cases, like political cases, when you talk about one political party versus another political party, there's going to be that type of corruption. But at least for right now in the financial sphere, there doesn't, it, you know, it seems to be working pretty well. And I think the SEC will end up winning this case. They'll end up forming a precedent with Ripple and then everybody will be on notice with the altcoins. So what do you think of that kind of rundown there, Q? You know, it's almost like so perfect for Bitcoin that there's no way that that happens. Like that's, that's my <laughs> honest opinion. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's like that's just too perfect. That's that's the, the dream. in me. Yeah. Like I'm with you though. I I loved your take, and I want to unpack a little bit of like, you know, Gary Gensler being more friend than foe to Bitcoin. I don't know if I necessarily buy he's a friend, but I do. I think buy into this idea that he may not actually be outright against Bitcoin yet. I think he he might see he has a better chance of winning certain cases against these shit coins first to then establish stronger precedent to then go and attack Bitcoin. Now, we, we try our best to, to separate some of these things, but I want to bring up the Hadanot trial. And yeah, yeah. there is a, there is a, a very key thing, I think, that is why so many Bitcoiners are so passionate about this case, because it's calling into question whether or not Craig Wright is in fact Satoshi Nakamoto. And what would happen if the court in Norway is to find Craig Wright to be Satoshi Nakamoto? Well, now you all of a sudden have a centralized point to point to and say this person can and has in the past controlled and manipulated this cryptocurrency. Then you can start to see a strengthening argument for some lawmakers who maybe don't understand Bitcoin as well, who maybe want to try to reach a little bit further, not necessarily use the Howey test perfectly, but just reach and say, well, we've gone after all these other cryptocurrencies built on blockchains. Ethereum is under our control. So either we go after Bitcoin or we put Bitcoin under our control as well. I'm I'm more worried that in each iteration of an SEC win, they strengthen their case to eventually come after Bitcoin. Well, what would they do to come after Bitcoin? 
I think the most the most commonly discussed attack, in my opinion, it would be something as simple as what you saw. I believe it was FDR who announced, like, "Hey, for the for national security reasons, everyone needs to turn over their gold. Mm-hmm. For national security reasons, everyone needs to turn over their Bitcoin." A statement as simple as that: "We will issue you something back. We will send you the CBDC to credit you for every Bitcoin." Every sat you send over to us. I think something as simple as that would be an attack on Bitcoin. Whether it be a legal attack or or not remains to be seen. I also think, and something that you talk about in your your most recent article is is the ETF. And I think something that we don't we kind of hear on the outskirts of Twitter get discussed, but there's a reason why the SEC loves the gold ETF. It's because it can and has in the past manipulated the price of gold as a result. But I do think there is a degree of being the inability to manipulate Bitcoin's price is a larger factor into why the ETF has not yet been approved than anything else that has been said. Because I don't think they can ever outright come out and say like, dude, this would be a brilliant idea. Absolutely. There should be a Bitcoin ETF. But the only reason ETFs really work is because we actually kind of can like fuck around and manipulate it so it doesn't like go over the rails too much. And they can't outright say that because then it calls into question every single ETF that's ever been introduced for a commodity in the history of ETFs. That's just my take, but I'll take the tinfoil hat off now and give you the mic. <laughs> well, yeah, I think so. You said there they could do a, what was it? 3108. I think that was the executive order where they yes. seized all the gold. Well, first off, they, they didn't seize all the gold, right? That you could still have numismatic coins and they, they took stuff that was easily accessible in certain types of accounts, but they didn't go into your home and, and tell you with your stack under your mattress that you had to turn in your gold coins. So there's a little bit of mythology around that event, I think. Plus, you know, if they did that today with Bitcoin, I think they would uh, spook the market for lots of different things. I mean, do you actually own the stocks in your brokerage account? You know, like all, all these things, if they did that to Bitcoin, they could do it to a lot of other things. And so I, I think that kind of weighs on their mind too about being maintaining confidence in the system. Now, I'm not saying it won't happen, but I think it's much less likely than what people think. And uh, so building up to that, I don't know, man, I think maybe it's my old age because I'm over 40 now. Maybe it's in my old age, I've become less conspiratorial. And I think that they, you know, Gensler, even though they, they are unable to do it, okay? So their their main claim is that they are about consumer protection, right? The SEC. Now they are unable to do that. Obviously, look at all coins. They're just—it's ninety-nine point nine nine percent scams that want to take your money, and the SEC does nothing, right? So there is no real consumer protection in the SEC. But I think they kind of want to be. I think they—I think a large majority of people that work at the SEC, just like a large man, I'm, I hate to say this, and and you guys, you know, this this wasn't my opinion ten years ago when I was all into like anarchist stuff. But if you, you, there is 10% of cops are bad, I would say, 90% are good. But, and, and you could go down the road of, oh, well, those, those good cops need to rat out the bad cops. They need to take care of their own house. Or if they don't do that, then they're bad as well. And the SEC, so 10% of the SEC people are bad, 90% are good. 
that's that's kind of how I break this down. And I think that most people in the SEC, and I think Gensler is one of them, they actually want to do their job properly. I don't know if they can do it, but I, I don't have like I don't think there's like a malicious intent overriding their actions. So what do you have to say about that, Q? I want to hear a proper response to that. Um, of, I just think ultimately there's too much power and control that has been given to some of these government entities. And it, it goes across the spectrum. It's not just the federal government level. It's not just state government level. It's all the way down to your local government level where there is corruption. I won't dispute whether it's 90% or good, 10% bad, or or 10% good, 90% bad. That's not yeah, yeah. necessarily, I think, where where my disagreement with you lies. It's more about the duties and obligations because somewhere along the way, all these sort of state-sponsored jobs, because that's what they are. They are state-sponsored jobs and employment. Yes. They were meant to be done in public service as almost a part-time position or role, whether it be an elected or, and fuck, I can't think of the word right now, of, of just being- Appointed. Appointed, yeah. thank you. Whether you're elected or appointed didn't really matter. This was meant to be a public service. Somewhere along the way, we, we lost that plot. I would argue it happened somewhere in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when a lot more money started to flow into America. And as, as a result, those with money decided and kind of understood how they could use that money to make rules that benefited them. I think the most famous example that I will always draw on is John D. Rockefeller and a lot of people's favorite president, Teddy Roosevelt. And Teddy Roosevelt would very loudly get on the campaign trail or say in his speech, down with Standard Oil, like this is a monopoly that has too much control and I want to break them up. He would say this in a speech, walk off the stage, and then collect a check from Standard Oil to help <laughs> run and finance his campaign. And yeah. that's why Teddy Roosevelt actually never broke up Standard Oil. It wasn't until Taft who came in after him, who never took money from Standard Oil and actually followed through on those campaign promises. So that to me is the perfect signal of that breaking point of politicians, of being in public service or being in service of those who help finance and push you forward. I just think there's, there's gotten a point where there's so much now money involved and in turn so much power that it just... It's, we lost the plot a long, long time ago. And rather than let's just like put a couple of Band-Aids here or there, I I haven't gotten old enough. I don't have a family to, to settle down and not call for absolute anarchy. I'm sure, <laughs> sure certain things will, will cause me to grow up and think things through a little bit more rationally. But for the time being, I, I personally am in the camp that to tear it all down and rebuild it, like... I'll say this in a way for, for the coders out there to better understand. There are times when you code and, and you are programming where there's just, there's somewhere there's a mistake in the code and, and you're having too hard of a time to understand and find it. And for time purposes, you are often better suited to just 
redo the entire code rather than go line by line, rerun every little point to find that point of failure. And I think we're at that point where to go line by line on all of the different powers the state have and say, hey, actually, you have too much power here. You have just the right amount of power here. You should actually have more power here. That would be, in my opinion, a waste of our time. And we're better suited to tear it all down and, and build back something better. Yeah, and you yes, make a bro- I did say those fucking slogans and, and I hate it. But that's <laughs> well, you make a brilliant point about it being too big. And I, I think along the lines of being big is it's inefficient. And I'm not saying by my arguments that, you know, I think that they're not malicious, that they're trying to do consumer protection. I think that they are are unable to do that. And even if they were, they would be more inefficient than a market solution. So I, I don't know, it's a kind of a nuanced position, but I totally agree with you. Now, I think also, man, corruption, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is, you know, Argentina, they are extremely blessed geographically. They have a lot of natural resources. They have a lot of agriculture. They have a beautiful bay. They're a beautiful water ocean access, relatively easy to defend, right? Cheap to defend. There's not a, a lot of armies nearby that they have to protect themselves against. So Argentina should be a super, super rich country. And it was until hundred years ago or so. But I think that a lot of times when you have natural resources like this and, and you have like this, you're blessed geographically like Argentina and maybe even like the United States is that you have this carrying capacity for corruption that's higher than other places. Like, you, you, so the corruption in the U.S. might be the same as, say, the corruption in Russia today, but the U.S. can hide it better because we have a, a you know, a, a higher corruption carrying capacity. I don't know if that makes any sense, but perhaps you know we're just going in a pendulum from o- overly corrupt to less corrupt, back to overly corrupt, and w- that's kind of how I see the world is, you know fluctuating between extremes and so you just have to invest accordingly Uh, put yourself in a place put your family in a place that they can ride the waves of this natural ebb and flow of human history i'm 100 i'm kind of like the antithesis antithesis of a marxist because marxists think that they need to redefine history then we are in control of writing our home own history or rewriting history. I think we have no control whatsoever over history and we are just riding the waves. So you need to identify those things and put yourself in the place where you can benefit. That's one reason why I moved to Florida here because I thought it was going the right direction. Now I moved here before COVID and that was kind of a happy accident that they were so great COVID, but I was trying to put myself, my family in a place of that was the economy was going to boom versus a place where the economy was stagnating in the United States. So, you know, you just got to do what's best for your family, try to ride the waves and invest accordingly. So well said. And so I want to now touch on the White House, the White House report. I want to come at it from a different angle, though. We talk a lot about, I think, the... I'm going to be nice right now. I'm trying to be nice. The foolish and sometimes silly remarks that politicians who very clearly 
do not understand proof of work or Bitcoin make. And at a certain point, there will be a decision made. I got into a, a little bit of a personal debate with my dad where I kind of pointed out, I was like, okay, fine. The, the U.S. wants to ban Bitcoin mining? Fine. Bitcoin's not going to go away. It's just going to go to the next jurisdiction that will let it. And it will be an almost failure to capture the competitive advantage that the U.S. can have in Bitcoin. My question is, is there actually, in the same way that we talk a little bit about like what is left unsaid by some of the statements out of the government, do you think there's something unsaid and a realization that has been made, at least by the this White House, by this White House in particular, to say, hey, Elizabeth Warren, we, we hear you. All of you crazy idiots who are like, oh, energy's bad. We hear you. But also like we bigger picture, guys. There's a bigger picture. Do you think there's some of that? Am I giving am I giving this White House a little too much credit? Yeah, I think that I mean it's my the way I view this situation is kind of there's a lot of different stakeholders here. So, you know, in the past there like if you would have done this 10 years ago you know that this was a conversation with bitcoin mining 10 years ago in the united states we would probably would have had a different outcome but right now there's kind of like this duel between globalist world economic forum folks and wall street that's how i i do see this this american business versus the globalists and that's how I see this shaping up. Now, why was the Biden executive order like friendly, relatively friendly to Bitcoin mining? At least that's how I read it. And that is because, you know, they're having to pick their battles right now. And I think the the business interests love Bitcoin mining. Just look at what who's doing a lot of flare capture now in North Dakota, in, in uh, some of these places around, around the country. Big ass oil companies are getting involved with Bitcoin. And you just said, who breaking up Standard Oil with Teddy Roosevelt or Taft or whatever? Well, guess what? Big ass oil has a lot to say in Washington, D.C. They have a lot of pull with the president. And so there, there's this competing interest between making the globalists happy in Davos with their ESG stuff and making the American businessman happy and American Wall Street, American banker. Right. So there's these competing interests directly that that meet right in this executive order. And I think you can see that. And for me, the American businessman is winning. I think populism is winning. I think globalism is on the decline. Davos, the Marxists sitting in Davos are losing. And we see that everywhere. We talked about this yesterday on FedWatch with Sweden, with Italy. You talk about Czechoslovakia here. A little while ago or slovakia i think and we see this in the u.s with midterms a quote-unquote red wave I, I don't know exactly what's going to happen with that but you know there is this movement towards anti-globalism that's out there so we see this right in this executive order and that, that's how i would like phrase it or frame it to read between the lines like what are we what does this mean give me a framework to understand this executive order what this exactly means, that's what I would say. I would couch it within this over this global competition between populism and globalists. And in the US, populism is the American businessman and Wall Street. So what what do you got to say about that there, Q? <laughs> 
You're so you're so right, and then also so wrong, my friend. <laughs> and the reason you're wrong, I'm gonna start uh, there. Is they're one and the same. What globalist and American business? They are because American businesses, especially the the creme de la creme of American businesses, are global businesses. They are not American only businesses. Name any of any company that comes to mind as a top tier business. And I will be hard pressed to find an example of one that is strictly US only. Oh, we yeah. can go oil and gas, Chevron ExxonMobil, operations all over the world. Any of these tech companies from Microsoft, Google, Apple, down to whatever software as a service company. We want to talk about consumer goods. Nikes or shit, I don't even know. Uh, any food or beverage thing, Pepsi, Coke, Adidas, like it's all, they're all global. So I actually think that their interests are aligned with sort of these, the, the push of these global elites and what they are doing. So that's where I actually think you are, you are off base a little bit there. I think there are some smaller businesses that are, and I think this is a very, very key thing, businesses that are rooted locally and keep local values have been able to cement themselves and prioritize, I think, their local operation. And as a result, are, their business and value is are antithetical to what globalists want. And that is sort of, that is where I'm looking for, for the fight against Example examples of this are local farmers who are now using and utilizing the internet to reach out to other customers that may not necessarily be in their local purview, but are able to share that share the same values, and then they are able to conduct business and trade with them as a result. I think there's a degree of this where there is an us versus them, and I think we're seeing it play out in real time. A P and I joke, but it's not. A joke it's more of a coping mechanism of like yeah there's gonna come a point where i don't want to say something insensitive but there's a lot of history and precedent from both movements from the left and movements from the right that have called upon something to happen and the the counter argument was it's not going to stop there and I'll use two examples. <sighs> I'm going to get misquoted. People are going to try to yell at me. Fine. Fuck it. These type of things need to be said. The argument against gay marriage was not gay people don't deserve the right to marry. There was a larger argument against gay marriage saying it's not going to stop there. It's going to get a, to a point where they are indoctrinating our children. Unfortunately, whether or not you agree with that narrative, that narrative has grown. Mind you, this was the argument against gay marriage that was used in the 80s and 90s, not in 2010, not in 2020. That was the base case back then. Look at where we find ourselves with this issue today. On the other side of the coin, the argument as to why Roe v. Wade should not be overturned was not of the skies of women deserve this right, babies deserve this right. 
No, it's none of that. It is the precedent it sets. It will not stop there. What is the next things that they will look at? Interracial marriage. What will what will they look at next? The right for gay people to be married or not. And then sure enough, in the decision that the Supreme Court submitted, they said that they want to re-examine and that things like gay marriage and interracial marriage should be reevaluated now. Like these concerns validate my my claim in saying it won't stop there. It will always be, well, you're not allowed to buy meat in the month of August is going to turn into, we will never sell meat again. You will only buy synthetic meat all the way down to, well, now you only have the choice to buy bug-based proteins. It's less about, hey, whether this is right or wrong and understanding more holistically that history has proven once we give an inch, they will take the mile. And I think that's what this fight has turned into. I hope that answers your question a little bit. I I deviated a lot, I think. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know about all these, the political examples. I would say like, you know, the Supreme Court has something to say about constitutionality of things. They can't enforce things or make laws or anything like that. But as, as taking it back to the ESG of business interest versus globalists and stuff, I mean, just ask the German people if ESG is good for business. I mean, so when I'm talking about the American businessman and the businessman of, say, Germany, they know that ESG is stupid and it's not going to work out. So that's the competing force here. You can say that the, the ma- major companies are corrupt, they're international and they're global co- uh, companies, but at the same time, they understand that these ESG globalist policies are not a way to make money. You know, go woke, go broke is the saying. And now we're even seeing things like CNN. They're firing half of their their workforce and they're going back to their good old days of in the 90s when they were relatively nonpartisan. We see things like Netflix firing a bunch of woke people and going back to non-woke programming. I mean, you just see this up and down the line. So it's it's a pendulum swinging back the other way. People know that this kind, kind of globalist, woke, ESG, you know, re- postmodern relativist morality is not a good, good for business. And so that's what I mean is the American businessman knows that this stuff isn't good for business. And that's where the fight is. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. And I'll even I'll, I'll throw this statistic to strengthen your argument because I, I do agree with with that. If you look at the ESG rankings by I don't know which one of these like three letter three letter globalist organizations puts out Sri Lanka, which recently collapsed by trying to follow all of these ESG things to to keep their businesses right. compliant with the money that the IMF gave them, was like had a 91 or 92% ESG rating was like one of the top countries as far as ESG ratings goes. The USA, you know, we are, we are the leaders of the world. We are the, like people should follow our example. Our example has us ranked all the way down in like the 50% range. So like, I think there's a degree where US businesses have like, 
understood that actually this ESG stuff will inhibit what they do. And things like carbon credits have become so normalized to help certain businesses operate because these Western businesses have the money to lobby against some of these legislation and or legislature. I don't know. They have the money to lobby against some of the legislation that gets submitted and in turn are able to create legislation that benefits them while not necessarily adhering to these policies and, and telling others, you guys have to do it. No, no, no. Like, trust us. We made this mistake, but it wasn't a mistake. We made those decisions because it helped our country grow and prosper. And then now we're at a position of luxury to be able to maybe cut some of those things back to help this ESG narrative if that is the goal, which unfortunately I just don't think it is. So that's, that's sort of the way I'm interpreting a lot of this ESG stuff. I do think that they want to push it through, but I think this is an example of these are rules put in place much like many of the laws that got put into place in the early 1900s by the likes of the Standard Oil crew to say like, oh, well, like, you know, we learned as we did this that like, you shouldn't let other people do this. Like, you shouldn't let other monopolies exist, but like, we'll break ours up, but like, not really, wink, wink, on challenge. Like, they continue, and like, I'll, I'll bring it to present day. All of these hearings that we hear about, like big tech going in and like calling upon Congress, like you should make these new laws. You should pass through this legislation to like curb tech's sort of power and reach. Why do you think they're doing that? It's not because they want to decrease their power. It's because they want to cement their place. They don't want another competitor to come in. And I think these ESG rules are exactly that. The developed nations are like, yo, if the whole world's developed, we're probably going to lose some of our share. So maybe if we create these little boundaries, these little hurdles, no one else is going to be able to, to get up to our level and we can maintain and keep our place. So I don't know if that, I don't know. That's my yeah, take. Makes That's sense. My yeah, it makes sense. It's just a, a different way to look at it. But Ansel, Chris is howdy guys. We are, we are at that time of day. I want to hand it off to you for any final words or remarks. We talked a lot about a lot of different things today. Is there anything we didn't get a touch on that you want to highlight really quickly? No, just thanks for having me on. Thanks for supporting my content on FedWatch. You guys have been gracious hosts, you know, hosting me on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern for FedWatch. Really love hanging out with you guys and, and doing that with CK. So thanks so much for that. And thanks for having me on here today, maybe fleshing out some of my stuff, some of my thoughts that people are unfamiliar with. And if you guys want to keep up with me, go to bitcoinandmarkets.com. You can get the free newsletter there, or you can even sign up to support my content. I have a Telegram. And of course, I'm also on Twitter at Ansel Lindner. And that's it, guys. Thank you. I cannot stress enough. Go subscribe to Bitcoin and Markets. The work that Ansel puts puts together for this is truly incredible. It's it's a free newsletter, guys. Like you're just gonna get smarter reading it. Before we go, I do want to remind everyone tickets for Bitcoin Amsterdam are on sale now. Use promo code BM Live to get 10% off of the tickets. Ticket prices will be going up soon. Do not snooze, you will lose. And of course, lock in your subscription to the print mag today. The next edition is going to be coming out shortly. You will want your annual subscription. We've released this print magazine once a quarter, so there are four issues every year. The work that went into the censorship resistance, I'm 
resistant issue. I'm so proud of my colleagues over on the print side who put this together. This is thick, thick almanac. And of course, Chris, can I, can I go? No, no word on P guys, but because P's not here, should I give you a dramatic reading? Should I, or is Chris just going to like pull the mic and like rap hard really quickly while I'm doing the dramatic reading? But I digress. Get your copy today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off of your subscription or anything you see at the Bitcoin Magazine store. That's a wrap. We'll be back tomorrow. Stack stats, stay humble. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference which includes hands-on engagements at our proof-of-workshop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLive for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLive to get 10% off of your order today.